Aren't you glad to be together today here in the house of the Lord? It has been so good to be together, to hear God's Word read aloud together, to receive His Word together with you, to be able to pray with you and to sing with you. There is something special that happens when the people of God gather together in services of corporate worship just like this that does not happen at any conference, no matter how large, and at any gathering, regardless of how big or important it is. God moves in a way among us when we gather together that is unlike anything else we experience as Christians individually, and he demonstrates something through us when we gather together corporately that is nothing like we experience as individual believers. I am glad you're here today. If you have your Bible, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes. Our time together will be greatly helped by you following along in a copy of God's Word. And if you do not have a copy of God's Word here with you, you should be able to find a Bible underneath the seat in front of you or near you. If you don't have a copy of Scripture that you can call your own, we'd love for you to take that home with you and to have a Bible that you can read so that you can study and learn more about Jesus Christ. We're going to begin reading in just a moment, Ecclesiastes chapter 9. If you're a guest with us, we've been in a series of sermons studying this book. Today we find ourselves in chapter 9. We're going to begin reading in verse 1. The preacher writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he speaks to us with the same authority as of Jesus Christ himself, we're here speaking to us today. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner." And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, But the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hands find to do, do it with all your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going." Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For a man does not know know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time 
when it is suddenly falls upon them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. It is a light unto our feet and a lamp unto our path. We thank you that we have had the privilege today to hear it read aloud. We thank you that we've had the blessing to confess its truths and teachings together. And we pray now as we turn our attention to your word to study it together, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear the truth of the gospel as it has been decisively revealed in the word of God. Lord, we ask for help. And Lord, we pray for any who have gathered with us today who are not yet believers that you would do the good work of removing the heart of stone and inserting the heart of flesh and causing them to be born again. And we ask all of this in the name of our God who has revealed himself to us as Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. Benjamin Franklin coined the famous idiom, nothing is certain but death and taxes. And life experience shows this to be true, though there are ways of getting out of dying. But the preacher in Ecclesiastes suggests that Franklin is only almost right. Death and taxes are not the only certainties. Uncertainty itself is certain. In Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 1 through 12, the preacher shatters the illusion that we can control our lives or that we can become gods and decide our own destinies. And to do that, the preacher shows us three things in life that are certain. Death is certain. Nothing is certain. Today is certain. I want you to follow along with me in chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. Death is certain. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and to the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. Since chapter 1, verse 3, the preacher has been on a deeply personal quest to find profit and benefit and gain in this life under the sun. So he tells us, verse 1, all this referring to everything that he has written so far to us. I laid to heart. The quest isn't theoretical for the preacher or abstract for him. It's personal, just like it's personal for you. You want to know that there is a purpose, that there is meaning, that there is a point to all of the life that you are living on this third rock from the sun. So, verse 1, he has been examining it all looking at life carefully from every single angle to find the formula that always yields an advantage, which is exactly what you and I both want. We all want the formula that yields an advantage. And the preacher tells us that he has looked everywhere throughout the world for it. He's looked for knowledge and food, sex and possessions, leisure and drink, accomplishment, wealth, wisdom, work, but nothing is getting it done for him. Whether you call yourself a Christian or not this morning, I wonder if you found that to be true in your own experience as well. Momentary pleasure rather than lasting satisfaction. So in chapter 9, verse 1, the preacher gives us an anguished reflection. Look again at verse 1. The righteous and the wise 
and their deeds are in the hand of God, which at first glance reads like a confessional statement affirming the sovereignty of God. All that the righteous and the wise do are in the hand of God, but then he says in verse 1, whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him, reminding us that the providences of our lives are not determined by whether we are righteous rather than unrighteous, or wise rather than foolish. We can be righteous and receive painful providence from God. We can be foolish and receive gentle providence from God. As the preacher says, man does not know what is before him, whether it is love or hate. And that means man cannot control what is before him, whether it is love or hate. Now that's easy to hear, but hard to believe in a world that has catechized us to think what William Ernest Henley wrote. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. To the contrary, the preacher in Ecclesiastes says, verse 2, it is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. No one knows what lies ahead of them. No one is able to say, this is exactly what my day will look like. No one is able to fan things out and determine what is their destiny, but we all know that there is one end for every single person in this room. Whether you're righteous or wicked, wise or unwise, good or evil, clean or unclean, believer or unbeliever, rich or poor, young or old, rich or poor, faithful or unfaithful, all go to one place in the end. And the preacher says, that is unacceptable. Look at verse 3. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. The preacher is not saying that death is evil, though that is true. There is nothing good to say about death. It devastates, it destroys, it takes, and it never gives back. What the preacher is saying is that the way this all works out is evil. How can it be that the good die young while the evil live to a ripe old age? How can it be that the just and the unjust both die? How can it be that the Christian and the non-Christian both have to face death and can be buried side by side? This is an evil that isn't done under the sun that the same event happens to all. The universality of death is unacceptable for the preacher, and it is inexplicable until we consider why people die. Look at verse 3. The hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. The preacher's assessment of the human condition is akin to that of the prophet Jeremiah when Jeremiah says in chapter 17, verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The preacher despairs not only of the common fate of all mankind. 
He despairs that their hearts are full of evil and that there is madness in their hearts while they live and that what follows them in madness is death. Brothers and sisters, this is the message of the Bible. You are evil. The Bible says it just like this. You are a sinner, not a little bit sinful. You are sinful to the core. You are sinful through and through. As the preacher of Ecclesiastes says, the children of man are full of evil. Being evil and being sinful is not doing or being what God requires in his word. His sin, your sin separates you from God. It alienates you from other people. It leads you places that you would never go in your right mind. So the preacher says, madness is in our hearts while we live. And sin, unrepented of in our lives, will send us to hell forever. The Apostle Paul said it like this, the wages of sin is death. Not merely physical death, but spiritual death and eternal death. But the Apostle Paul also tells us, God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Brothers and sisters, I wonder if you have considered today as you've come to church that Christ died for you, and wonder of wonders, he died for you while you were a sinner, not after you stopped sinning with whatever sin that you're wrestling with right now in your life. Not after you figured out how to manage your sin so that it stopped wreaking havoc on your life and disrupting life. Not after you cleaned yourself up from your sin so that you would find yourself more presentable to other people. But while you were a sinner. If you are a Christian here today and you have ever wondered to yourself, does my life matter to God? Does he even know that I exist? Does he even care that I am alive, then remember this. Your value, believer, is seen in the fact that Christ died for you. And he died for you more willingly than you receive eternal life. He died as your substitute. He died so that you wouldn't have to die a spiritual death. He died so that you wouldn't have to die an eternal death. He died so that you might have life and have it abundantly. But brothers and sisters, if you're here today and you are not a Christian, it is my prayer and the prayer of every believer in this church that you would hear the words of the preacher and the words of the apostle and learn that there is something worse than death awaiting you. There is something worse than physical death, an eternal death that is separated from Christ and from God. And the preacher says, on that day, there will be no more opportunity for you to amend your ways by repenting of your sin. Verse four, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. Better to be the most despised animal in the ancient world than to be the most admired creature ever and dead. That's the whole point of verses five through six. The time is coming when all the things that are most important to you in the world, all of your strongest emotions in this life, all of your love and all of your hate and all of your jealousy, the time is coming when all of them will go cold and vanish and you will be forgotten. Verse five, for the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing and they have no more reward for the memory of them is forgotten. 
Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. The great American preacher and theologian Jonathan Edwards once wrote a series of resolutions when he was 19 years old that not only marked his life, but the life of countless millions of people who have read them since. Resolution number seven captures the proper attitude of a focused mind living in light of eternity. Edwards writes, resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. Edwards is clear enough. Do nothing you would not like God to see. Say nothing that you would not like God to hear. Write nothing that you would not like God to read. Go no place that you would not like God to find you. Read no book of which you would not like God to say, show it to me. Never spend your time in such a way that you would not like God to say, what are you doing? But I wonder, brothers and sisters, if you knew that today, this hour was the last hour of your life, would it change anything for you? If you knew that at the end of this sermon, you would be dead, would it change anything about the way that you think about your marriage or your finances or your relationships or your job or your life? If you knew that in one hour, you would be standing before the throne of God, face to face with the risen Lord Jesus in all of his majesty and power, would that affect your life right now? Unbelieving friends, we are so glad that you have come here today. As we come to the scriptures today, you have an advantage over many people who are not here today. The scriptures of this hour ring true in your life precisely because you are doing something better than simply living your life as if there is nothing to care about in the world, as if you can just do whatever you want. We have come here today to hear the word of God, and it tells us of what is before every single one of us, death. It might be years away for you, or some people have found it might be next week for you, but death is coming, and life with all of its pleasures in this moment mock you, and they remind you that death is coming. Each pleasure, each achievement, each accomplishment in your life is casting a shadow over your life from which you cannot escape to a future that without God in Christ is not bright, to a future that apart from Christ will usher you to a place where your very existence will be one where you actually get what you deserve. And what is it that you deserve? The same text tells us, the wages of sin is death. But you don't have to die. In that same verse... The same apostle tells us the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And you can have that life today if you will repent of your sins and turn away from your wicked deeds and place your faith in Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. The question that is before you is will you do that? Will you come to Christ right now and plead the precious blood of Christ? You can repent of your sins and trust in Christ and ask God to forgive you. And every time we turn to God in repentance, the scripture assures us that we will be met with forgiveness and mercy. If you have questions about that and what that means 
to believe in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, I would love to speak with you after the service. So would Josh, one of our elders, Terry sitting over here, Nick's somewhere over here to the side, they would love to speak with you about the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Come find one of us after the service so that we might open the Bible with you and tell you about Jesus. If you have any thoughts about what it means to contemplate your eternity, brothers and sisters, we are reminded in each and every service that now is the time to decide upon Christ. In the end, the preacher says, death makes no sense. As one pastor said, death will leave your face tear-stained in perplexity, and because death is like that, life works like this. God comes to us in Jesus and says, trust me, walk with me, love me, Put your hand in my hand. Believe my word. Stop trying to understand everything. Stop trying to be in control of everything. Stop trying to tie up all of the loose sins in life, to have perfect peace and wealth and health and happiness. Stop trying for all of those things and stop it now. You can't see that life doesn't always make sense. Then something is coming your if you can't see that life doesn't always make sense, then something is coming your way that will prove it to you. Death. Death is certain. Notice second, nothing is certain. I want you to drop down to verse eleven with me. Again I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. The preacher helps us see that we actually tend to live our lives as if the one thing that is certain, death, is uncertain, as if it will never come, we push it away, while there are many things that are uncertain that we take for granted as if they are certainties. So in verse 1, the preacher asserts that no one knows whether love or hate is before them. And now in verse 11, he explores the more disturbing possibility of how difficult providences actually ambush us in our lives unexpectedly, especially when we feel that the ground beneath our feet is solid. And his observations are based simply on verse 11, what he has observed in the world around him under the sun. Again, I saw. And what did he see when he looked out onto the world? Five outcomes that we do not expect. Verse 11. The race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. Of course, nine times out of ten, the race is to the swift though I did beat Mark Van Tines in a race once, and you can ask me that after the service. And the battle is most often to the strong. And usually, the prudent person knows how to balance their budget so that there will be food on the table. And many times, the well-educated person gets the best jobs and receives the best breaks. But not always. Because verse 11, time and chance happen to them all. In other words, unexpected situations arise, circumstances immediately change, and unforeseen events occur in our lives. You simply cannot predict what will happen to you or your family or your friends or at work 
or anywhere around you in our country or around the world because, verse 11, man does not know his time. You cannot know the future. And if we're honest, that is incredibly frustrating, especially when we think that we have done all that we need to do to help us control it. When we were sick, we went to the doctor, but we're not getting any better. We've put ourselves around other Christian people, but it never ends in a relationship, much less marriage. We studied hard, but we didn't get a job, and the job we got is not what they told us it would be, and now there's no way out or up. Just like fish swimming happily along, or a bird flying and landing for some food, and then out of the blue, they're caught in a net. So too, we have often lived our lives and had them turned upside down by a disaster that we thought would never come or we were sure would happen to somebody else less prepared than us. Verse 12, like a fish, like fish that are taken into an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. Maybe you'll never get that job. And maybe you'll never get married or have kids. And maybe you'll never own a house. And maybe you'll never get any better. And maybe things won't work out the way that you planned them to. Or maybe they all will. But as long as you put your faith in the uncertainties of life under the sun, rather than the Son of God who came to us from beyond the sun, you will always be disappointed with life's providences. Friends, I wonder... From whom, or from what, or from where are you seeking to derive profit, or benefit, or gain in this life? And once you answer that for yourself right now, how is it working out for you? Recently, I was visiting my mom, and since I'm not home very much, the memories of the life I lived before I was a Christian and while I was there always come crashing upon me every time I'm home. And while I was there, I just stopped to consider the fact that literally nothing in my life, and by nothing I mean absolutely nothing, nothing that I own, no one that I know, every single one of you before me would be in my life apart from the gracious intervention of God on February 3rd, 2002 when I walked through the doors unexpectedly at First Baptist Church, Citronelle. And it is personally overwhelming to consider that I have absolutely no idea whether I would be alive or dead or what would have happened in my life. And it is overwhelming because all of the things that I thought would bring me satisfaction, all of the things that I cared about before I came to Christ, money, possessions, pleasure of all kinds, never did while I was searching for profit, for benefit, for gain in this life under the sun, rather than beyond the sun in Jesus Christ. So the question for all of us, when we pause and think like that, is what should our life look like in the meantime? The answer the preacher gives us, though, is not the kind of answer that you and I are good at receiving. His answer is very simple. Life between now and then. 
The life that we live between this moment and our last moment is to be one that is well-lived in light of our death. If you do not know that you will one day die, then you will not know how to live your life now. But if you know that you will one day die and that everything that you hold dear right now will one day, because it is all held on loan, be gone, you can enjoy it more now than you could have ever imagined. The path to wisdom along life's road is to enjoy the good gifts that God has given you, not the ones that you wish that he would have given you instead. Death is certain. Nothing is certain. Notice third, today is certain. Now move back up with me to verse 7. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun. Because that is what your portion in life and in your toil at which you work, uh, in which you toil under the sun is. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Verses 7 through 10 are not the answer to death in verses 1 through 6. Verses 7 through 10 are juxtaposed between verses 1 through 6 and verses 11 through 12 as an alternative vision of life. An alternative vision that the preacher tells us is actually all-encompassing. Look at verse 10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all of your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. So, right at the beginning of verse 7, the preacher says, go, seize the day as the preacher moves away from advice to imperatives. Did you notice them in the passage? There are five of them. Go, eat, drink, enjoy, do. Why does he move from advice to imperative? The second half of verse 7 tells us, all of life is a gift from God. For God has already approved what you do. God takes pleasure and your pleasure, because he has given it to you. God takes pleasure in your pleasure, because he has given it to you. Since chapter 1, verse 3, the preacher has been on this deeply personal quest to gain in this life, but he does not find it. And he finally helps us see that gift not gain should be the focus of our quest. As one pastor said, life is not about the meaning that you can create for your own life or the meaning that you can find in the universe by all your work and ambitions. You do not find meaning in life simply by finding a partner or having kids or being rich. You find meaning when you realize that God has given you life in his world and any one of these things as a gift to enjoy. But how do we enjoy the good gifts that God has given? The preacher begins to unpack that a little bit for us. Verse eight, let your garments always be white and let not oil be lacking on your head. Sidney Grudanis points out from the Bible that when people were distraught, they often wore sackcloth and ashes to show their grief, but white clothes were worn to reflect 
the heat in the midst of the day and to show purity and cleanliness. Oil was there to protect them and to nourish their skin, and it was worn to show, show a joy and happiness. So don't think that simply because you're going to die, verses 1 through 6, that it doesn't matter how you live your life now or how you dress or how you care for yourself. God cares how you live your life. Rather, look after yourself. The world is meant to be a place of color and beauty. And brothers and sisters, just by saying that and interpreting what the preacher says, I want to be very clear what I'm not saying, especially to women in the congregation. That has nothing to do with the size of your waistline. Being beautiful has nothing to do with the way that the world has distorted it. The Lord tells us that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Every single person in this room right now and every single person on the planet is beautiful in God's sight. God cares about your life, and he cares how you live it, and he cares that you take care of it. It is your responsibility in this life to hold up what is beautiful and to celebrate what is good. And for any here who have a perverted picture of that, we love to help you. The world has distorted our picture of what is true beauty and what is truly worthy of celebration and honor. And it is moments like this when we look around the room and we see a diverse group of people who don't all look the same. We see the beauty of God in diversity, the beauty of God in difference, the majesty of God and the fact that we are not all the same. The preacher tells us that we are to enjoy life, that we are to look after ourselves, that we are to, to let celebration be a part of our lives. Next, the preacher says, verse nine, enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. If you're married, do not downplay this verse. We are not told live with your wife or put up with your wife or tolerate your wife. We are told, enjoy your wife. Husbands and wives, if you are too busy to enjoy one another, then you are too busy, period. If you are too busy to enjoy time with one another and you no longer put in the effort to like one another, then something is wrong. All we gain in a marriage like that is taking rather than giving. And when we take and do not give, not only are we doing the exact opposite of what Pastor Josh read for us earlier, but we are preaching something contrary to the picture of marriage that God has presented to us in the Bible. But just in case we don't get the preacher's point, that he's not simply talking about a few things, eating and drinking, marriage, how we live our life and taking care of ourselves. He just fans out and begins to sum up in a universal fashion in verse 10. Whatever your hand finds to do at your work, in your studies, in your home, with your kids, with your friends, in what you read, in what you watch, everything that you do, whatever your hand finds you to do, do it with all of your might, not some of your energy, not a little bit of your energy, not the best of your energy, with all of your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom and shield to which you are going. A day will come when there will be no energy to expend. A day will come when there will be no more friendships. There will be no more relationships. A day will come when there will be no more opportunity for you to receive the phone call and decline another invitation to celebrate with other people. A day will come when you can no longer work on the relationships in your life. Death is coming. 
Give all of your energy to it right now. Work at this right now. Do not delay. Do not wait. Friends, when God made the world, he made it good. And no amount of being Christian or being spiritual changes the fact that you live in a physical world, in a material universe with eyes and hands and feet and food and drink and culture and relationships, all of which God has given for his people to enjoy. So whatever you do, do it with all of your might. The preacher tells us that there are some things in life that are certain. Death is certain. And there are some things in life that we take for granted that we think are certain, that are not certain. Uncertainty is certain. And the preacher tells us that one certainty we can hang our hat on is that today is certain. Whether or not we know this is the last day of our life, we will not find out until the end. As we close, I just want to give some concluding application questions for you. First, does death awareness fuel your enjoyment of life now? Does death awareness fuel your enjoyment of life now? Everything will be taken from you, but not everything will be lost for the believer because death does not have the final word. But does death awareness fuel your enjoyment of what you have right now? And by that I mean, how often in our lives do we look out and all we can think about of what is about what God has not given instead of what he has given. Second, are you looking under the sun for satisfaction that only comes beyond the sun? Are you looking under the sun, this life, for a satisfaction that only comes beyond the sun? Third, husbands and wives, What can you do this week to enjoy one another in one way that you did not last week? Often we read a verse like that and we think, I need a complete overhaul, and perhaps that's true. And it can be so discouraging. What can you do, one thing can you do this week to enjoy each other in a way that you did not enjoy one another last week? And for those who are not married and long to be, How can you pray for other people in this church that they might enjoy one another in one way this week that they did not last week as you continue to pray that the Lord satisfies your own desire? Fourth, have you considered how this alternative vision of life is fulfilled in the church? I want everybody to take their Bible with me very quickly and turn to Colossians chapter 3. And in Colossians chapter 3, you're going to find a phrase that sounds a lot like what we just read from the preacher in Ecclesiastes chapter 9 verse 10. The Apostle Paul is writing to the church, and he's writing to a young church that's been told some false things after some of them have come to faith in Christ. And they've been given a lot of foolish rules, and we see this at different parts, where they're submitting themselves to the elemental spirits of the world, that their abiding commands do not taste, do not touch, all referring to things that perish and are used. They're, they're not enjoying this life. And then he now presents an alternative vision on how they're to live life in chapter 3. And in chapter 3, verse 17, he says this to them. Whatever you do, 
in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, we read that verse and we think, how do I apply that individually? But what we see from the apostle in the context of Colossians is exactly where we began our service. There is something that happens when we gather together and something about the life of the church that is not replicated anywhere else. This is not primarily about how you personally and individually can do everything so that you might bring glory to God only singularly through your life. But in the manifold wisdom of God, in the context of the church, he's speaking to a group of people who are to, verse 5 of chapter 3, put off old patterns of life, and then verses 12 through 17, put on new patterns of life, as they, verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell among them richly, teaching and admonishing one another, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with one another, giving thanks to God in their hearts so that whatever they do collectively together, in word or deed, they would do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Brothers and sisters, when we come together It is not primarily about you fixing your individual life. We long to help you, and we do. But when we come together, it is to learn how we can live our life together, this shared Christian life together. Members of this church, that's in our serving, that's in our praying, that's in bearing with one another, letting love cover a multitude of sins, That is in sharing with one another, being gentle with one another, as God in Christ has been patient with you and has not treated you as your sins deserve, putting off old patterns, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and putting on new patterns, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, love, and forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. As we think of the alternative vision that the preacher paints for us in Ecclesiastes, where we see that begin to be fulfilled is in the context of the church. A group of people coming together with a shared vision of life. If you have been buried with Christ, chapter 2, and you have been raised with Christ, chapter 3 of Colossians, then you are to live this way together. And brothers and sisters, if you have any question about what it means to live this life together, then before you leave here today, you need to walk out through that tunnel, you need to turn to the right, and you need to go reread the church covenant on the wall and remind yourself of the promises that you have made to one another and ask yourself, am I fulfilling those promises to the other members of this church? I'm faithful in my attendance. I'm faithful in my participation. I'm faithfully forgiving other people. I'm faithfully serving this body. I am generously giving of all that the Lord has entrusted to me for the sake of the mission. Rather than putting myself forward, I am living good for the good of the collective community. And if you cannot answer yes to that, then refamiliarize yourself with that covenant and remind yourself of the alternative picture that we are all called to in the context of the church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the scripture and we pray that you would write its eternal truths on our hearts. Lord, we ask that you would help us as we today leave this place. 
May we remind ourselves of the gospel. May we remind one another of the gospel. May we seek to do spiritual good to one another for the building up of the body of Christ. Father, whatever we put our hand to today, may we do it with all of our might, knowing that everything that we have in our life is a precious gift that comes from you. And Lord, may we live each day as if it's our last. Father, I think of those who are in the congregation today who are wrestling with sin of a variety of kinds. I pray, Father, that you would help them put that sin to death and that they would live their lives in a way that would honor Christ. I pray for those who, Father, are wrestling with the difficult providences of life. Not everything has worked out the way that they have intended it to. And they have been reminded time and again and throughout all of Ecclesiastes that they can't control it. Father, I pray that you would comfort them and help them see that it's not simply chaos, but in the midst of that, they are to enjoy what they have each day, taking it one day at a time. And Father, we all pray for those who are with us today who are not yet believers, and they hear of this alternative vision of life, of repentance from sin and trust in Jesus Christ and something about a church and them living life together. We pray, Father, today would be the day that they not harden their hearts, but Lord, that they would be softened to the message of the gospel and that they would turn to Jesus Christ and be saved. And we ask all of this in his name. Amen. Would you stand? And continue?